Well, welcome to Pregnancy Help Podcast. My name is Christine Grimmett, and I'm joined by our Vice President of Ministry Services, Betty McDowell, and our special guest, Stephanie Gray Connors. Stephanie has an impressive biography with her experiences in speaking and teaching on life issues. So we'll jump into that in a moment. But first, let me just mention that this episode is sponsored by Heartbeat's upcoming annual conference. You can join us in person March 30th through April 1st in Jacksonville, Florida, or online at our virtual conference on those same dates. We have both of those happening simultaneously on a variety of topics related to the pregnancy help movement. Registration is open now, so you can head over to heartbeatservices.org to get registered before we hit the early bird pricing deadline. Betty, would you like to start us off? Thanks so much, Christine. Appreciate you in the seat as our producer. And welcome, Stephanie. We're so glad that you're with us today. So I was thinking about this and thought, okay, I've got like three reasons why I'm so excited for you to be with us. One is because you are Stephanie Gray Connors. Uh, two is because you're Stephanie Gray Connors and you're going to be a keynote speaker for us. And three, because you're Stephanie Gray Connors and you're going to be doing a five-week apologetics course for Heartbeat International in our academy. And so I was looking um, at what that course is, and it it says that uh, we'll give you a crash course on how to answer and defend your pro-life position compellingly, compassionately, and with love, which is something that for me, when I hear your voice and I have listened to some of the um, presentations that you've made, that is certainly what I hear and appreciate so much about you. It goes on to say, together as a class each week, We will walk through a chapter of Stephanie Gray's Love Unleashes Life, review supplemental material, and participate in exercises and discussion applying the chapter specifically to our role in pregnancy help organizations. So really excited about that. And something that we get to do, which we don't always get to add to our courses, is that there'll be a a question and answer session, which happens on January 27th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That is for those who are exclusively in the course. So that course will live on after in a recorded fashion, uh, but it's just really exciting to have you with us, particularly at a time in culture where abortion has become such a hot topic. Uh, culturally, politically, all the things that are in place. We're seeing all kinds of interesting things in the pregnancy help community as we serve throughout the nation with different things happening in different states like Texas and, of course, waiting now for the Dobbs case. But Stephanie, I wanted to start with you by um, asking you, actually, here's one question that I really wanted to ask because I heard it on a recording. Do you really play the ukulele? (laughs) <laughs> I do. And in fact, I uh, not only love my ukulele, but I've been using it as the size reference to my newborn daughter. So every month when we take her one month, two month, three month, four month photos, she's placed next to the ukulele. Ah. And uh, we it's incredible to see the growth from one month to now four months. So yes, I do. <laughs> Sometimes we, we have something around here where we'll say, hey, that experience or that person, what surprised you? And I thought of someone asked me that about you, that would be the first thing I would say is I heard she plays the ukulele. So, um, but here's, here's my question for you, my more, little more serious question. Uh, thinking about, you know, when I was a little girl, what I wanted to grow up to be and which I won't tell you what that is, but I have good friends who would say, I wanted to be, you know, the president of the United States. I have yet to hear someone say, when I grew up, I want to be an apologetics uh, professional. I want to write books. I want to speak on the issue of abortion. I've not heard that yet. And so 
I don't know that that's your story, but I, I wanted to hear a little bit from you on what you wanted to be uh, when you were a little girl, when you would grow up and how, um, kind of how you came to this place. What's your, a little bit of your family of origin? Let us get to know you a little bit, Stephanie. Sure. Yeah. All great questions. So uh, I live in the United States now with uh, my American husband and American daughter, but I am from Canada. I grew up in Canada and my parents were both really involved in the pro-life movement. I was born in 1980. So, you know, abortion became legal in Canada in 69, in the U.S. in 1973. So, you know, only within 10 to 15 years of those decisions did I come into the world. And so there was a lot of movement and gathering amongst people of goodwill who wanted to fight against this terrible evil that had descended upon not just North America, but but the world. And so my parents got very involved. And when they moved to a smaller town from the big city of Vancouver, my mom in particular started volunteering at the local pregnancy care center that had been set up. I mean, back in the day when pregnancy care centers were largely run by volunteers, um, you didn't have full-time staff. And so my mom, who had a nursing background, was one of the volunteers. So she would uh, do the pregnancy tests and counsel girls. And when they gave birth, she'd go to the hospital and visit them. And I would always tag along. You know, of course, when dad was at work, my mom would pack up my sister and I in the car and off we'd go to the center and I doodle on pro-life letterhead and play with fetal models and go through the clothes in the back room to see if I could snag one or two items for my dolls while mom was counseling the girls. So that is the environment I grew up in. So from a very young age, first of all, I loved babies. Whenever we were around friends with a baby, I was that kid that was always like, can I hold your baby? Or I'd say to mom, mom, can you ask them if they can bring the baby to me so I can hold the baby? <laughs> and, and then when I could babysit, I started babysitting right away. And so I loved children. And then because of what my parents were doing, I became very aware of what abortion was at an early age. And so in loving children and knowing what abortion was, I was horrified that this was legal, that it was happening. And uh, Temperament-wise, I'm a very uh, passionate person. Actually, although I was born in Canada, my dad was born and raised in Scotland. And I often say I'm a stubborn Scot. I have a really feisty personality. I'm not a redhead, but I can kind of act like a redhead. And I think my daughter actually is showing signs of being a redhead, the hue of her hair. So I have this kind of determined personality, speak your mind. And so all of that made me very convicted at a young age where I was writing letters to the Prime Minister of Canada, the Premier of my province, and I was telling them they needed to make abortion illegal, and I would keep writing them until they listened to me. And then when I would get assistance of these politicians writing me back the form letters you get, I would write the assistants and say, it's Stephanie Gray here. I'm 13 years old and I didn't write you. I wrote the prime minister and I want to hear from the prime minister. And I literally have a stack of letters that, that I'd written. So in, when it came to what my career would be, I actually knew that I always wanted to be involved in the pro-life movement. Like my mom volunteered, I envisioned I would volunteer. I never knew it could actually be a career. And when I was in my first year of college, that's when the idea of working full-time in the pro-life movement became a reality for me. I attended a conference for pro-life college students. It was in Canada, but an American I know who's a friend of Heartbeat is Scott Klusendorf. And he came to Canada to speak all weekend at this event and to train us students in pro-life apologetics. And he was a full-time public speaker. And when I heard him give a talk, he said, there are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. And it was like the Holy Spirit 
grabbed my heart in that moment and essentially asked me without me hearing the audible words, but would you be one of those people working full-time to save babies? And so uh, I approached Scott and he mentored me uh, that weekend. And then from a distance, he returned to the United States and he would give me assignments and say, read this pro-abortion essay and write a 500 word rebuttal and I will mark it for you. <laughs> and so he treated me like I was a pupil and then invited me to a fundraising training seminar uh, two years later. And all that set the stage for when I was 21 years old and graduating college, I started full-time pro-life work. Wow. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. So yeah. <laughs> my hat's off to him. I appreciate what he did for you and, um, and appreciate your tenacity. So we do see a lot of that. I don't know that I've seen it at uh, 13, a 13-year-old um, and who was able to really stick with it like that. I'm sure there are some out there, but what, a, what an inspiring thing. And, and really, um, gosh, what great parents you have. Um, I do. I do yeah. have wonderful parents, you know, and in terms of sticking with it, one of the things that I've heard is that whenever children are exposed to something, particularly at, around the age of nine, that is a very um, pivotal time in their development. And a lot of things they're exposed to at that point really can leave a lasting impression, of course, for good or for evil. Uh, I'm dear friends with uh, Lila Rose, and she really was convicted when she was nine years old and came across, you know, the, the pro-life handbook by the Wilkies. And although, you know, I was writing letters at 13 at 12, you know, really growing up in the movement, when I was eight, nine, 10 years old, I knew what was happening. I was observing what my parents were doing. So I really credit that as, as planting in me a seed that would uh, bury deep and uh, be in fertile soil and bear much fruit. I'm so glad you said planting the seed because here at Heartbeat International, we have something called the love approach, which is really um, a great on-ramp for us to talk about your book, Love Unleashes Life. But it's very foundational to the culture of Heartbeat. It's something that we train um, pregnancy help organizations to do, whether that's maternity home, pregnancy center, but it certainly goes beyond the ministry to women who are in need. It's really a way of life. And it was developed by our now board chair, Peggy Hartshorn, who's a PhD in English and a wonderful writer. And so she put together something called the Love Approach. And L is how we listen and learn and become a student of that person that we are ministering to. Um, o is how we open up options for that person. We continue to listen and, be, and stay as a student, but we begin to open up options. V is to give vision and value, to help awaken or reawaken in them what God's vision would be for their life. And then E is to extend and empower them. What are the next steps to take to head toward that vision that God has for you, all the while being a student of that person and listening and, and helping to understand their thoughts, their beliefs, their needs. And so that is the love approach. And we know full well doing that in the pregnancy center practicing that, having that become part of the culture of your organization um, is, is just, it's foundational to who we are, but it also plays out quite well working with boards and donors and churches and marriages. I've practiced it with my kids and decision-making. And so when I came across that title, Love Unleashes Life, I thought, wow, that so fits the love approach that we teach 
of planting those seeds. And so wanted to ask you if you would share a little bit about Love Unleashes Life. What's the story? There's always a story behind a book. And so if you could share a little bit about that story that um, then produced the book, and then, then tell us about some of the content of the book, because that's in the course that we'll be sharing that comes out January 10th is when that course goes live. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So, you know, I started giving talks right after hearing Scott. So at first I was 18 back in 98. And then I went full time in 2001 when I was 21. And so as I started giving presentations and traveling around, people would ask me, oh, have you written a book? Like is what you've just said in writing? And I would always say, no, I haven't written a book. But my mentor, Scott Klusendorf, has is called Pro-Life 101. And I always had the attitude that I didn't just want to write a book for the sake of writing a book, uh, just to have my on it. If there was something out there that I thought did the job, then that's what I would point people in the direction of. And so for years I did, and I still stand by Scott's book. It's it's amazing. It's foundational. It's a real good primer. As the years went on, not only was I giving talks, but I was doing a lot of outreach on college campuses, taking part in pro-life exhibits where we would debate students on abortion, ask them what they think. And as I was having these conversations with students, a lot of them would open up to me and share with me that they had abortions or that their sisters had abortions or they drove someone to a clinic or that they had been raped or they grew up in abject poverty. And through these stories, they were really conveying their heart to me and their heartbreak. And I started to see that as I was encountering certain students who were resistant to the logic of the pro-life message that Scott had so wonderfully shared with me that I was then sharing with others. But these people were resistant to that. I was realizing it's not only a matter of knowing the logic behind the pro-life claims, the science, the philosophy, and imparting that well. We also need to have a, a sensitivity to the heart of the person that we're speaking with. And as you know, your, your acronym is, you know, really listening to them and finding out where they're coming from and how that can influence how they receive what we're saying. And that even if we're logical, if they have a place of brokenness as it relates to abortion, they may not receive that message until we go to that place first. And we work, walk through that with them and listen and learn and so forth. And so as I was having these conversations, I would use all my logic, but I started to apply some other points as well and different analogies and and different thought experiments and they would work and there, there was, it would resonate with people. And so I just developed more material and I would say the material didn't replace what I'd been trained by Scott and even other people, you know, Francis Beckwith has written well on this subject. Greg Kokel has also done great writing. So I wasn't replacing any of that, but I was very much adding to it. And so I got to a point where I was like, I actually think I have something to offer that is new and helpful. And so that's why I finally sat down to write the book, Love Unleashes Life. That's great. I, I um, I'm looking at kind of the introduction in this book, and and you, uh, I had jotted some notes down, which I'm trying to look at my writing. You made mention here. You're, we're not looking. I have. We're not looking to train pregnancy center workers um, to be great arguers, right? To be able to win an argument, uh, or you said good arguments by good arguers. You want something more out of that. And that's, that's what I'm hearing in your heart. And that's really, to me, I, I always think there was a book I read many years ago 
a secular book, and it was um, how to pick uh, a partner, how to pick a spouse. Mm-hmm. And and one of the the main point of this little book was just that um, look to find out how kind that person is. Mm-hmm. It's kindness that was key. And they said, uh, how does he treat his mother? How does he treat a waitress? How does he treat others? That kind was the key word. And so that's what I feel like I'm getting out of that. It's like, you know your stuff, you want to be knowledgeable, uh, but you want to do that in love and being kind. And I kept thinking that's such a good word to describe you when I've listened to um, some of the presentations that you've done. Uh, That's what stood out to me. That truth, truth with grace. Well, thank you. And I certainly would echo what you said about when when it comes to choosing a spouse. In fact, when people ask me my own love story about how did I know my husband was the right one? I actually say the moment I met him, I could tell he was kind. There was something in his eyes, in his face, his disposition. It just exuded kindness. And then that became abundantly clear as we started talking and interacting and sharing stories and then seeing how he interacted with strangers, with family, with friends. So if we think about it, even in the scriptures, when Paul defines love for us of all the words that could be used to define it, his first two words of choice are love is patient and love is kind. And so when it comes to interacting with others, yes, we want to be intelligent. We want to be wise. But part of that wisdom, in fact, in imparting our intelligence means that we need to be patient with people and we need to be kind. And kind doesn't mean being walked all over. It doesn't mean holding back from the truth. But it means how we proclaim that truth and how we uh, interact with an individual does more than just win an argument, as you were pointing out in the start of my book there. It's about winning the person. And kindness will certainly do that. So that was an added bonus for our listeners on relationship advice (laughs) from Betty McDowell and Stephanie Gray Connors. (laughs) So, Stephanie, tell us a little bit about maybe the content of the book. Um, if there's a chapter in particular you want to talk about, and maybe some expectations on what you hope to see happen in the course. Sure. So in terms of the content, yeah, it's really about equipping the reader to know how to reach the mind as well as the heart. And the first couple chapters are really about the whole disposition we need to have when entering into conversation. So before I even tackle the specific arguments that we will hear, the questions will be asked, what about rape? What if a woman's life is in danger? Who are you to tell another person what to do with their body? Before even entering into those arguments, the first thing I wanted to do was lay a foundation for how we ought to interact with people, what kind of disposition we should bring to the conversations that we're having. And so I use Jesus, who is the best example, as the example of how to impart our message to people. And when Jesus interacted with people throughout the scriptures, we see him continually asking questions and telling parables. And so I talk about how a good pro-life advocate will ask questions and tell parables, or I use the term stories or analogies to make a point clear. Because when you ask someone a question, it prompts them to think, what is the answer to that? And then it engages their mind. It gets the wheels turning. And that's what we want to do. We want to get the other party thinking in a 
in a culture where so often people haven't thought deeply about abortion. They will think at a surface level, they'll have an emotional reaction, they'll hear a slogan and repeat it, but it's the question we ask them, how did you come to that conclusion? Why do you believe that? What about this that causes them to pause and think through what they've just said? And then stories are a great way to activate the imagination, make a concept more understandable because it's relatable, because we can envision what is being said as it's lived out in a set of circumstances we can relate to with characters and environments that we can understand and easily visualize. So I talk a lot about the importance of questions and stories, and then the importance of treading carefully with people, realizing that we may be encountering the broken. So we want to seek to understand where the other person is coming from. And then all that sets the stage for, you know, chapter three, I believe it is. I should know my own book, but (laughs) um, really reaching the mind. So the basic arguments, this is what we're going to hear. How do you respond? And then chapter four being uh, how to reach the heart. When the arguments seem to fall flat, they don't always, but when they seem to, then that tells me it's a heart issue. And then I share a lot of my own stories of interacting with people where I make those discoveries and then how loving them, listening well to them has transformed that individual in a conversation I'm having where they began in a very hostile way with a lot of attitude, anger, and animosity towards me. And the moment they sensed I willed their good, that I genuinely was interested in what they thought, even though I didn't share their view on abortion, as they felt loved by me, I I have seen people be transformed before my eyes where they suddenly are calm and they're pensive and they're thoughtful and they're kind. And that's because the, then the whole title is Love Unleashes Life, that when we love people, it does something to them. Yes, we can literally unleash life. If you love a pregnant woman, you can save the life of her child. But we can also figuratively unleash life by just raising the spirits of the downtrodden, of someone who's wounded and upset, and, and we can bring life into a seemingly lifeless situation. That sounds great. That's inspiring. So that's what the course will be like and excited for our uh, students to sign up through the academy and to be able to take that course. Um, One of the things that you're known for, in fact, I think the very first time I actually heard your name, uh, it was attached to a a talk that you did at Google. That was the first time I was like, wait a minute. And then it was, who is this person? And wanting to learn more about you. So can you talk just a little bit about that experience at Google? Because I saw the talk, but I don't know what happened after. I don't know what the crowd looked like. I don't know how that was received. Uh, I think it's pretty fascinating. And for our listeners, if you're not familiar with that, the best place to go and get that talk, is that on uh, your website? It's, I, I, actually, that is where it's I saw on, it. I mean, it's on, people can get the link for my website, but it's actually on Google's channel on YouTube. So I would recommend people go ahead and, and, and listen to that. But so I, what I want is, so after they, as they're listening to that, can you help me understand what it looked like from your side of the stage? What, and, and what happened uh, after you did that talk? Sure. I'm even going to share a little bit of what you didn't ask, which is how do I even give that talk? (laughs) Because I think when people watch it, the natural question is in this cancel culture we're living in, how did a very quote unquote anti-abortion message get a platform from an organization like Google? And I would say 
the answer to that, which is why I want to address that, is it's something we always need to hold at the forefront of our minds, which is God makes a way. God is a way maker. He's a promise keeper. Um, and he made a way. He parted the waters. There was a staff member at Google who was familiar with my work, knew the organization, ran an internal program like TED Talks, but it's called Talks at Google, where they bring in speakers for their staff, but they record it. So then it amplifies to the world through their YouTube channel. And he knew the president of Planned Parenthood had just been in and thought, I wonder if Google would let the other side of the debate in. And he approached me and said, if I put your name in the ring, would you speak? And I said, well, of course I would. But what are the chances Google's going to say yes? And it really felt like a miracle. And I say, God blinded the people who needed to be blinded and gave sight to the people who needed to have sight. And miraculously, a path was opened for me to be accepted to go there and give this talk. And it was advertised all over the campuses of Google offices. And you can watch in person where it is. And they they brought me to actually the, the headquarters of Google in Mountain View, California. And then you can tune in via an internal live stream system at Google offices around the world. So I was told that we actually had more throughout the internal live stream than we did in person. In, in person was maybe about 30 that ended up coming over that lunch hour. On the internal live stream, there was about 200. And then, of course, they put it on their channel, and it's now had over 200,000 views in, in a few years. So the audience, I would say, I wasn't sure what to expect. I thought, look, I'm going into potentially a hostile environment. Is there going to be receptivity to this message? But they were quite muted, if anything. I would say there was a, a real quietness to the audience, they were quite a pensive attitude towards what I shared. There were some good questions, which are in the recording. And then the real prayer point afterwards was that it would get on their YouTube channel. And not all of their talks go on their channel, but in, indeed they decided to do that. So two months later, they loaded it and then it it just went viral and, and it went around the world. And what's so amazing about it is Google ended up being the platform for the proclamation of the pro-life message. You know, not my YouTube channel, not your YouTube channel, but their YouTube, their YouTube channel. channel. Yeah. 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 So that, um, that, that was how kind of that happened. And then afterwards, you know, there's just been so many um, opportunities that have come out of that to be able to reach far more people than I had reached in the entirety of my career. I had a unique opportunity two years ago to go to Mexico and do an eight-person debate on abortion at an event like TED Talks called CDI, La La Suida de las Ideas. Um, And I thought, oh, Mexico, Catholic country, you know, this is largely going to be a pro-life crowd. No, actually, um, about 50% of the audience was not Christian. And the majority of the audience was not pro-life. So it was like an incredible opportunity to get in this very secular environment with a, a pro-life message. And that came because of the talk at Google. That's our way maker, as you yeah. said. Yeah. Wow. Well, I know that um, in your book and when I've heard you speak and you've said, whether that's with one person or that's with a crowd, you you share, you, you find out where they are, you, um, you practice a love approach with them, and you tell stories. And so I thought as we're coming to a close, uh, the question I have for you, because I know that you're, uh, you're going to be talking to people who have been working in this movement 
uh, some who are new, some who've been around a while, but we all hit those moments even of discouragement. And so um, like King David, when his uh, when his men turned against him, it says he he went away and spent time before God, and it was probably in worship, and I believe it was in remembering all the things that God had done in the past. And so we know that stories shape us, stories inspire us. So I wondered if you would share with us a story um, that you go to in your heart and in your mind that inspired you, that perhaps changed you, so that when you have those times perhaps when you feel a little um, weary or war-torn kind of, what do you go to? What what story or what memory comes back to you of um, of someone who really inspired, someone who changed your life? I thought that would be a great thing for our listeners to hear from you. Sure. Well, I I love being inspired and I love stories of inspiring people, quotes that are inspiring. Uh, I have a little quote box, any visitor that comes to our house when they leave, I always say, put your hand in this box of quotes and pull one out and be inspired. You know, and they leave, they leave with a quote. So um, in terms of where I go, I mean, most obviously I go to Jesus. I go to the foot of the cross when, when I'm overwhelmed in the movement and, and feeling distressed and dismay, uh, prayer, um, relationship with God, sitting at the foot of the cross and just being in the presence of the almighty, uh, is, is certainly one of the places that, and the primary place that I go to. And then I look for inspiration beyond God, um, to God's creation. And so who has he created to inspire us? All kinds of people. And one of the things that throughout my career I have done, and it's not that one particular person is coming to mind right now, but one of the things throughout my career I've done is I've been very drawn to stories of social reformers throughout history who lived during times of great injustice and oppression and who were part of the minority that spoke up at great personal cost. And when I used to, there was another ministry I used to work for. We had an internship program and every summer we would play several movies for our interns of people who lived during times in the past of great injustice. And I would always turn to those stories. So the few in particular that are coming to mind, that's what came as you've asked me that question. Um, One is uh, the story of the suffragettes in the United States who in the early uh, 1900s fought for the right to vote. And they were imprisoned. They protested the wartime president during the first the first World War. And there's a, a whole movie about the story of these suffragettes called Iron Jawed Angels, um, excluding one inappropriate scene. The rest of the film is phenomenal. And I was deeply inspired by the fact that these women were willing to go to jail uh, just to stand up for their voice and, and their rights. Um, the other movie that we would show our interns was Schindler's List. And I've been very inspired by Oscar Schindler, who rescued, you know, several thousand Jews during the Holocaust. There's a movie also, I can't remember what it was called. It might have just been called John Paul II, but the um, former Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, John Paul II, who lived during World War II, who had Jewish friends, some who survived the Holocaust, some who didn't, um, who then lived through communist Poland and then spoke up, you know, when he would travel to Africa, he talked about, you know, the history of slavery. And there's a powerful scene in one of the movies about him, a dramatization where you see him standing where the slaves would have been kept right before being forced onto a slave ship and brought over to England. And it was 
stories like that and people like that, that I would always go to when I faced hard times and think if they were willing to speak out, if they faced persecution, if the people around them were being persecuted and they were willing to be salt and light, then I can too. And just as they had moments of deep sadness, deep frustration, um, I'm experiencing that too, but they didn't give up. So neither will I, and they pressed forward and so will I. And so, yeah, I mean, I have a whole, a whole list of movies I could recommend, but those stories and people come to mind. So there's a theme here and it was uh, something I, I like to read and I, I kind of write in the back of the books and some of it's from reading, some of it's from uh, listening to some of your presentations. And you had made a comment about who inspires you. You were talking about who inspires you and why and asking that yes. question. And you make that comment about um, they've, they've suffered, they faced challenge, and it's really how they responded. They put, you made three points. Uh, they put others ahead of themselves. Uh, they have perspective and they do the right thing even when it's hard. Mm-hmm. I caught that theme in, in all of the movies. <laughs> You just Absolutely. Presented. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And uh, and that was, in fact, I think how I started my talk at Google with that question that I've asked so many people on college campuses, who inspires you? And the reason for that question, and you're right, those three qualities are in all the people in movies that I just referenced, is what I really heard from people who have defended abortion is they will talk about the hardships of the crisis pregnancy, being alone, being young. Uh, not being ready, not having a support network, um, being raped, you know, uh, being just poor in, in really difficult circumstances. And I realized that if I started asking those people who would justify abortion in those cases, who inspired them, that they would start to think about people who were in really hard situations, people who went through difficult times, people who faced injustice, people who didn't have all the resources they needed, people that were in seemingly helpless situations. And then I would ask them why those people in such difficulty actually inspired them. And then these individuals would always tell me, oh, well, because they didn't give up and, you know, they pressed forward and they had persistence and, you know, they, they focused on the end goal of what, what, the, what was right rather than the difficulty in the moment and all of these things. So then I would say to them, if someone who inspires you is an individual who's gone through hardship, but always done the right thing and never gave up and, you know, held to principle, then in the circumstance of an unplanned pregnancy, shouldn't you follow the example of the inspiring person? And what you just described to me and and hold on to principle and do the right thing, even when it's hard and look at the end goal and the long-term perspective and not just the short-term. And so I found that that little thought experiment, that question was very transformative in in my conversation. So that's why it's in the book. It's in the Google talk and it'll be a key part of, of the training that you do. Wow. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Thanks for your time. Thanks for that story. I can't help but think that there's someone out there. It's not just as we minister to the to the moms, the women, the families who come into pregnancy centers and maternity homes. Um, but I I have a sense that people who are listening to this who have been in the movement for a long time, there are some folks out there that needed to hear what you just had to say because they they get weary themselves. And so just that boost for yourself that yeah, it's hard. They're suffering, but we do have perspective. And we know to do the right thing. And that is really following the call on your life. And I'm really grateful uh, for the call on your life and what God has done in your past, uh, in your present, 
uh, being married and having a little one at home yeah. and uh, what God has for you in the future. And part of that future short term is the art course and the conference and then beyond whatever God has for you. So I hope that our listeners have enjoyed this time with you, Stephanie. And with that, I'm going to turn it back over to you, Christine. Thanks. And uh, what a great way to kick off the uh, start of that course on January 10th. So if you're interested in joining that course, you can go to heartbeatservices.org slash academy. And there's also an affiliate discount if you're an affiliate of Heartbeat International. Um, so again, that's heartbeatservices.org slash academy. And also, if you would like to see Stephanie at our conference in Jacksonville, Florida uh, in March, then go to heartbeatservices.org. You'll see a big banner about conference. Can't miss it. Uh, registration is open. So make sure you get registered before that early bird discount runs out. So um, again, heartbeatservices.org is your place to go for all of that information. So thank you. And I hope everyone has a great and blessed rest of your day.